Hear the word of the Lord. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. That's good to see you. My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. It's been a fun uh, couple of months for me with the birth of my uh, third child. Uh, what ha- what's happened is my, my so I've got, now, I presently have a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and a newborn. And for a while there, when, the, when my oldest turned about four, he stopped being affectionate with me the way he had been. And I don't know if little boys get cool or it was just heartbreaking for me. And then sister follows whatever little brother does. They can't get enough of mom, right? Every day it's a battle over mom. But for me, I'm just like the lonely, big-hearted teddy bear over here, sad because the kids don't like him anymore. But all that changed when baby came because now baby gets all of mom's attention. And so I'm kind of like the leftovers, like the parent leftovers, but I'll take it, right? I will take it. Uh, And so practically what this means, we've been having um, lots of camp outs, you could call them. And here's what a camp out is in my home. Um, So my five-year-old and four-year-old share a room, uh, two twin beds. They're very nice. They were like $62 at Sam's Club or something. They're horrific little kids' beds. Um, And so... The campout will be me, a grown man, in one twin bed with the five-year-old and four-year-old, right? all pretzeled up. They just want to, they light these, um, not real candles, like we're not that bad parents, um, <laughs> the electronic candles that look like candles, that fake flicker, like what we put out in the lobby for Easter. So they'll set the candles up, and, and then we're there all pretzeled together on this little tiny bed. Suffice to say, it's not comfortable in a physical sense, um, but then a, a, a few weeks back, one of the last times we did it, uh, you, these beds are small. If you haven't been in a twin bed in a while, you know, you're fortunate. Um, so I'm large, and I was laying there, and I had my arm, I was on my back, and I had both of them like this, and it was kind of like a, a bed rail, so they wouldn't fall out one side. We got a wall on one side, but then the other. So I'm, I'm holding them up, and uh, they're sitting there snoring. But not, they're young enough, like they chew with their mouth open, but it's not aggravating yet. You know, like there's, it's still kind of cute. Some of y'all chew with your mouth open, it's driving everybody crazy. Stop. But they can do that, and it's cute. And so it's like these cute little, cute little little kid snores. And then you can hear the newborn with his like little cooing, like, like baby sleeping thing. My wife is, has, you know, she's got a few minutes of peace. We went to sleep with the house reasonably clean. And, um, I, I felt the H word. Do you guys know what the H word is? 
Who said it? Somebody said, happy. We don't like that word in church. I don't know if you, we take it very, anybody felt guilty about being happy or, or know somebody who made you feel guilty for being happy? I didn't feel guilty in that moment. Um, I was holding my babies, the house is kind of clean, and I had just like this pervasive sense of this is enough. Like this could be enough for me, right? And fell asleep in like the bliss of parental happiness. And because I was in the other room, I don't have my alarm, didn't sleep well, I wake up late and I hurt all over. (laughs) Sleeping in bad beds is different at 36 than at 18 or something. So I hurt all over and I've got to like peel my sweaty kids off of me. And then I got to run to the shower. I show up late to a meeting, creak in my neck, and I'm worried that I'm having a heart attack because I've got pain in my shoulders that's radiating to my neck. And then I'm running through all my meetings. And that's when I start getting wound up and anxious like that. That's when the, um, the fantasies start. Or, and here's what the fantasies look like for me. I get on Zillow and I increase our price by, you know, like 10 or 20%. So if we could have a little bit of, if maybe we had a little bit more space, maybe if we were out in Corridor with some land, people would leave us alone, then we could have bigger rooms with bigger beds. And if we had bigger beds, my kids could sleep through the night. And if you start playing the if only game, if only this, and then if only this, and if only this, we could have that, that brief moment of happiness and it would last forever. It's sad to me in the church what a hard time happiness has fallen on, or we think we've somehow... Um, I don't know, lost faith or we're selfish if, if we want to be happy. Uh, if you're anti-happiness, you will have a hard time in heaven. Um, Psalm 16 says, pleasures, O Lord, are at your right hand forever. No, it doesn't say like duty and boredom at your, are at your right hand forever. Um, pleasure, fun, delight. It's good and it's right to want to be happy. You were made to be happy. It's This emotional feeling of happiness isn't some cosmic accident that God didn't see coming. He created you for the capacity of happiness. It's a good thing to want to be happy and to desire happiness, but but boy, is it tough to find. And and should you be fortunate enough to get a taste of happiness, it's very difficult to keep. In my experience, happiness for most of us, it's like we have this low-grade drudgery in life or like it's hard and I'm working and it's and then you get this blip of happiness on on the chart right and then happiness and then back down into the normal and we, we rejoice over these times that we get but they seem to be brief and fleeting so we come here to Matthew chapter 5 uh, which is the Sermon on the Mount it's the most famous sermon of all time I would argue one of the most influential writings that's ever Uh, been written. And it's Jesus kind of taking on the role of philosopher. It made a lot of sense in that day. And I would argue the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's answer to the question of happiness. If you look around, everybody's got an opinion on where to find happiness. Um, Most marketing companies are trying to get you to buy their stuff with the promise of happiness. Um, What Jesus offers us isn't simply an answer, though, to the question of happiness, that there's also an invitation that he has for us here, something to embody, something to live into. And if, if you remember last week, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus has this robust healing ministry going on. So people with uh, epilepsy, uh, people who are paralyzed, people who are demon-possessed, all of these crowds are coming. And 
Now Jesus breaks away from this ministry to teach about life with God, uh, to teach about what following God looks like. Why would he leave needy crowds and this exciting ministry to teach people? Like imagine you're at the soup kitchen and the line's just out the door. More people are coming. They've heard about how wonderful the soup is. And at some point, somebody's like, hey, listen, we're going to stop with the food so we can go do a Bible study. Wouldn't that make some of us uncomfortable? Thinking, well, isn't this the good stuff right now? We're taking care of people. Why would Jesus leave and teach the disciples about happiness? For Jesus, happy humans are a sick world's antibodies. The the antidote to a broken and twisted world is us living into the fullness of who we were created to be. You ever wonder that that weird passage Paul talks about in, in the book of Romans where he says, all of creation is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. He's saying all, the whole world itself is longing to see humans be what humans were made to be. Why, why is that? Because humans fully alive are antibodies to a sick world. Our, our very presence goes out and heals what's broken. So Jesus is pressing his message deeper into the disciples so that they might experience healing and wholeness, not just in their, their physical bodies, but in their minds and their souls and, and in the pursuit of life that he's calling them to. Happiness for Jesus is a way of life in Christ that restores our humanity and heals the world. So, hopefully, we have a happy sermon this morning. We're going to talk about happiness, what it is, how we get it, how we keep it. And we're going to pick up where the text does, verses 1 and 2. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. The crowds, those are all the sick people from before that were coming and asking him to heal him. He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So there's, it's really important that Matthew is starting off this way. He's not doing this just to let us know chronologically what happened, or, you know, Jesus beginning, sometimes you'll see Matthew say stuff like, and opening his mouth, he said to them, and you're like, well, how else would he do it, right? Like, keep his mouth closed. Saying, um, he's trying to show us something. So let's do crowd participation Bible trivia time. This usually goes very poorly for me. Um, but the 9 o'clock did it right. The 9 o'clock nailed it. I will say that. So, can you think of somebody else in the Bible? Does somebody else come to mind that they went up on a mountain to receive wisdom from God to teach people how to live? Yes! Yes! I'm so proud of you guys. I make fun of you for not reading the Old Testament sometimes, and you, you nailed that. We, we, we get Moses. Okay, yeah. So, You've heard us say throughout Matthew that fulfillment is a big theme in the book of Matthew. And he's showing Jesus here as the fulfillment of the greater Moses, the one who would go up on high to receive wisdom from God in how to live and pass that on to people. Jesus is the true Moses, giving revelation from God about life with God. So in Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain to teach people, to receive wisdom from God, to teach them how to live in life post-slavery. So you... Hopefully remember this, but did the Ten Commandments come before or after they were freed from slavery? After, right? Some people think of the Ten Commandments as God saying, do this if you want to stay in my good company. Do this if you don't want to be in trouble. That's not what they were. He's already said, you're my people, I'm your God, I've saved you. And do you think people who've been in slavery for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years might need to know how to live apart from the crack of a master's whip? Can, can you imagine those first few days of freedom, how utterly disorienting and confusing they would have been for Israel? 
And so the Ten Commandments come saying, this is how you will live with your new freedom. Now Jesus comes preaching a message, the kingdom of God is at hand. Again, he's not saying, do all this stuff if you want to see the kingdom of God come. He's saying, repent, come home, because the kingdom has come. And if you're confused about how to live in the kingdom of God, if you're confused about how to live life with God, well, here, let me give you instruction. And then we get what's called the Beatitudes. This is Jesus' instructions for life in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to experience what we're calling the good life, life as it was meant to be lived, the full life, the happy life, these are the ways forward. And they're known as the Beatitudes. Uh, Most of us, uh, our translations that we're familiar with or when we see the Beatitudes talked about in public, they're wildly famous. We hear this repeated phrase, blessed are the blank. Blessed are the blank. Blessed, blessed, blessed. And it's a word we're kind of confused about. Um, It's a thick, beautiful word. And I'm in no way trying to undermine English translations right now. I am not, I'm not smart enough. No one asks me, you know, to help translate Bibles. But there are times where the languages that the Bible was written in are kind of like 4K, ultra 3D, whatever. And then in English, it kind of goes black and white. You know, so we, we get the same essential stuff here, but we can miss some of the fullness and, and the depth of it. So this word blessed, there is no English equivalent for it. So we're, we're, you, you grab six different translations and they'll probably all have different words there because it's a huge, deep, thick word that we, we don't have a one-to-one equivalent for. And we've got to get some clarity on, on, on what this means. Uh, some translations will say happy. Happy are those who blah, 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 blah. Uh, for most of us, when we think of the word blessed, we think of God giving a gift or something lucky or fortunate happening. Um, that is not this. Uh, first, this word is a pronouncement. It's a declaration of what somebody is or what something is. So blessed here, when you read it in the Beatitudes, it's a state of being. You know how we would say alive or um, Fast is the one who's running a 4440 or that kind of a deal. You know, it's a, it's a state of being about who they are. It's, it's a pronouncement. It's not talking about God showing up and doling out some unexpected gift. It's a pronouncement. And second, it's a promise. Um, this word is, is tied to the word shalom, which is rich in b- biblical meaning. Um, what it's saying is that um, the person living this way is on the road to becoming a true human being. So to be blessed is to be in a state of of being fully human, of coming alive, of living as we were meant to live. Just as Moses gave wisdom from God for the Israelites to learn how to be free, Jesus is giving us true wisdom from God about being human, and particularly human in a fallen, broken world. So we could translate this word, uh, truly human, or truly alive, uh, flourishing might work too. It's saying to be in this kind of a position is to be close to being human. It's to be on the road to being human. Jesus, in, in Jesus' teaching, happiness is a state of being where humanity is reclaimed and restored. It's a virtue-oriented lifestyle. We pursue these things, and we will become these things. It's not tied to circumstance. It's tied to our pursuit and our posture of life with him. So if you want the baseline, what am I using as a definition for happiness? Christian happiness is becoming your true self in Christ as you follow him. 
It's becoming who God made you to be in Christ through your ongoing obedience to him and your following of him. It's a glorious state of having your heart oriented to God and enduring circumstance for something far more beautiful. We have to divorce it from this sense that happiness means this momentary hit of adrenaline and dopamine that makes us feel good. It's, it's a long-term reclaiming of our humanity in Christ. It's a way of life that sometimes will leave you with a creak in your neck. It'll sometimes leave you waking up the next morning with aches and pains on your body, and we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. But ultimately, it's a way of life that will free you from your slavery and release you into the freedom of life with God. That's what happiness is. How do we get it? The Beatitudes. So if you want to zone out from here, I've said most of everything I want to say in the sermon. If you hear nothing else, memorize the Beatitudes and live them, and you will become human. That's what we're doing for the next... 15 minutes, 14 minutes, we'll see. So here are the Beatitudes. Blessed, so again, think truly human, think flourishing, think alive, think whole. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These words have had world-shaping power. Um, They've changed lives. Nothing has so directed the course of um, human living as this teaching. So in a sense, put a sticky note somewhere with all of these on it and do what they say and watch what happens in your life. Um, I don't want to go through each one of these. I'm hoping you've heard the Beatitudes in full twice now in this service. I'm hoping one has resonated with you. And I would encourage you to receive that as some kind of invitation from God. Which one of those made you slightly uncomfortable? Which one of those did something inside of you? Um, I want to look at the the Beatitudes as a whole. Sometimes uh, Matthew shows Jesus' teaching through the structure of what he said, the organization of what he said. And, And so I want to talk about some of the big picture themes that are consistent through each one of these Beatitudes. Uh, The The first one, and we'll spend the most time here, is um, the Beatitudes teach us that true happiness will require some rethinking on our part. You don't have to raise your hand now. Some of you are here this morning and you're deeply unhappy. You're very unhappy. Um, And I want you to consider that maybe your way of doing life is not working for you. Now, we, we have bad days, we have bad weeks, but then bad weeks can turn into bad years, bad five years, bad lives. So, what I'm asking you to consider is take the last maybe five, ten years of your life. Are there patterns that you see happening, regardless of who you spend your time with, what church you go to, where you live, 
what your job is, you see these patterns repeating. And there's a temptation to blame everybody else. Those pastors did this to me. That friend did this to me. That boss did this to me. When you start getting into years at a time and the same kinds of things keep happening, the wise person begins to consider whose problem is this? Some of the unhappiness in your life right now is not your fault. Awful things happen to people that we don't vote for. So please don't, if, if you're here and you're unhappy and you're struggling, this is not me saying that it's your fault. Um, some of your happiness is not your fault. But some of it, especially if you're finding repeated patterns in your life, some of it probably is. And if your life isn't working, it probably won't get any better until you admit that, that it's not working and, and you're probably to blame. If you can't see the ways that you are causing your own pain, you likely won't get any better. Not all of your pain, okay? Do I need to say that three or four more times? Not all of your pain, but some of your pain, yes, it's on you. So I want you to consider that maybe your understanding of what a good human life is and what happiness truly is may be off base because it's gotten you to a place where you're unhappy and your life is not working for you. Uh, if you're here and you are happy, keep going. Right? We need you here. We need your presence spreading out and filling this place with hope. We need you, so keep it up. You're doing a great job. In the Beatitudes and in Jesus' ministry in general, we're being invited into an upside-down world that will feel foreign to us. Which is why I start with, are you willing to acknowledge that your way of living isn't working for you? Because you're being invited into something that will feel topsy-turvy. So listen, Jesus says those who feel desperately poor, down to the core of who they are, desperately needy, are truly human. People who mourn are flourishing. Those who thirst and hunger for things to be right, do you know how frustrating it is to have that hunger? Like, do you, it's 2019 and we're still talking about school shootings. What's, it's 2019 and we're still talking about white supremacy and national socialism. You, like the whole world went to war to figure this thing out almost 100 years ago. And we're still here talking about it. If you hunger for things to be right, this is a maddening time to be alive. It's frustrating. What's going on with all of this? We'll, we'll see it in a moment. The answer to that, I think. But on the front end, you have to see, if you want to be happy, you have to know your life isn't working so well for you and then come to Jesus, but come prepared to rethink what will get you to happiness. Come to Jesus prepared to rethink what it means to be a human being and to be alive. Not cars, not spouses, not children, not houses, not whatever you think it is that will make, it, make your life the way it was meant to be lived. Jesus says, no, 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 it's a posture of soul and it's a way of life. If you think that there is a, a degree of accumulation or circumstance you can get that will fix the problems in your home or in your marriage or in your own soul, you are setting yourself up for incredible exhaustion. 
We are being invited to know our own poverty, our own neediness, to learn the dangers of our own strength and embrace meekness, to stop avoiding conflict and become peacemakers. And for many of us, this will feel entirely upside down. It will feel vulnerable. It will feel exposed. And so that's where I would just plead with you again. Are you happy? How is your way of life working for you? And if it's not working, maybe it's time to take Jesus at his word. The Beatitudes are an invitation to come to Jesus and learn what happiness really is and what it really looks like. Requires us rethinking. Happiness requires our remembering. Again, Christian happiness is a state of being. It's not a momentary feeling. It's a long-haul endeavor. And something that's absolutely unique in the teachings of Jesus is the promise of pain and suffering. So if you're here and you're thinking about following Jesus, we would say do it, right? You should. But we also want to be clear, life will get hard for you. Jesus doesn't promise an end to the suffering, an end to the pain. He promises you a way to endure it. So if you pursue Jesus' happiness, it will hurt you. Um, You'll take on responsibilities that are painful as you learn to share one another's burdens. Um, You'll put things to death in your life that won't feel good. You ever try to kick a 20-year habit? You You ever try to change from the way you do relationships if it's been a pattern for 30 years? There's, there's a reason, Jesus says, if you want to come to me, you must come and die. It's not a pleasant process. Beyond all of that kind of internal angst and, and difficulty, um, we're promised that following Jesus will get people upset with us, even when we're doing it right. You'll offer a word of kindness and receive a word of hate. You'll offer a word of encouragement and receive an accusation. You'll do the right thing over and over, and people will curse you for it. And people will hate you for it. You'll live perfectly in line with the teachings and invitations of God, and it will, it will only make those around you angry. Some of you know that pain. So, we remember that this way of life is reshaping us, even when we can't see it, even when it's painful. And we remember what the future holds for us. You feel poor and needy? Well, remember, you will receive the kingdom of God. You feel hungry? Remember, you will be filled. You're mourning. Remember, you will be comforted. Happiness is a virtue-oriented life. It's living with a posture pointed towards God. And it requires remembering that some, some prayers and promises are answered today, and some of them are answered tomorrow. When you are hurting, remember, you will be comforted. When you don't want to show mercy, you all know that feeling? Right? You're just ready to unload. You got all your ammo, you got all the stuff, and you're just ready to load. And then you hear Jesus say, blessed are the merciful. So you you put your weapons away. Why? Because you will receive mercy. Rethinking and remembering our happiness reshapes our souls. So the Beatitudes come to us as an invitation to learn what true happiness is, and an invitation to wait on Jesus as he reshapes us. Some of his promises we will experience today. Some of them we must wait until someday in the future. And so fundamentally, 
I would say the core theme that ties all of the Beatitudes together is an invitation to reliance. Ultimately, happiness is found learning to rely on God and have a posture of needy dependence on God. Did you notice how all but one of these statements are negative? Have you ever noticed that in the Beatitudes before? All but one of these are things that I think most of us would be like, no thank you. I would prefer not to be hungry. I would prefer not to be in mourning. I would prefer not to be lied about. I would prefer not, you know. There's one positive at the very end. And I think this is the summary that ties all of the Beatitudes together. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get into what this word pure is in the next few weeks. And in essence, it's having a heart wholly devoted to God. Jesus will set up these comparisons between people who come to church and act Christian. They practice their piety out in public so everyone can look at them and think how good they are. And then when they get behind closed doors or whatever, the, the true nature of their heart is revealed through their words, through their actions. He's saying people who are focused on God, wholly devoted on God, the pure in heart, are truly human because they will see God. Having your heart pointed at God, your hopes resting on God, your life led by God. This is why you are close to truly being a human in all of those other circumstances, because they force you to learn to rely on God. When your back's against the wall, when you're out of options, suddenly you learn these holy prayers like help. We let our guard down. We stop being so confident. We learn to rely on God and his provision for us. And this is what makes us truly human. This is what we were made for, to live in dependence on God and to, to long for him as a deer pants for water. The Beatitudes are an invitation to long for God and trust him. And there's this, this bit of irony at the end where Jesus describes what some of this actually looks like because in this we get a picture of why we know we can trust Jesus. We get No one caught it at the time. We get this picture of how his own perfectly human life would end. So he says this, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This was a staggering teaching at the time in and of itself, um, but Jesus didn't just teach this reality, he lived this reality. He, he lived a perfectly righteous life, and yet when we think of somebody who was insulted, somebody who was persecuted, someone who had false accusations made against them, Jesus of Nazareth should be close to the top of that list. These are the very things that happened to him that led to his own death, and he says, come and follow me, which means the, the, a life centered on the Beatitudes, the virtue-oriented quest for happiness in Christ will often look cruciform. It will come to us in the shape of a cross. But we can bear these crosses because we know Christ has already bore his. He identifies with each of these states of being in the Beatitudes, and he shows us what our ultimate reward is, and that is resurrection, new life. We will become human. The perishable will be traded for the imperishable. And that is, that must be, at least in part, our motivation in the Christian life, finding our own happiness and reclaiming our own humanity. We don't pick up a cross just to do it. 
Some of you have lived a guilt-driven Christianity. That's why you're so angry and tired. Everything you live has been lived by what you shouldn't do or what you must do. And somehow, have you noticed that never makes you feel like you've done enough? That's not human to be driven by guilt and fear. We don't pick up a cross just for the sake of picking it up. We do it to follow Jesus. And we do it like Jesus for the joy set before us. You've heard that passage before? Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. There's nothing wrong with saying, I want to be happy and I'm going to pursue that so long as you're willing to pursue it the way Jesus tells you to, which may look quite upside down. This is the good life, our journey of becoming our true selves in Christ, of finding happiness and peace amidst all of life's suffering and sorrow, of being a people filled with hope and joy. So we stoop low and we hold on just as Christ did. We come under the teaching of Christ. We follow Christ even when it seems upside down. And week after week, we come to celebrate the reason we can hope at all. Because yes, Jesus' life led to crucifixion, but that crucifixion led to resurrection. And that's what secured hope and life for all of us. So we come to remember the night he was betrayed, when he began this journey of enduring false accusations of being slandered, he gave thanks for the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. Remember what he's endured for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, take this and, and drink it. This is my blood shed for you, which makes you safe with God, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this, remembering what I've done for you. This is our, our promise. Um, Christ's body broken, Christ's blood shed, so we know that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. If we're willing to follow him, we will get what is ours, the hope of resurrection, the promise of life eternal. Our tradition at Sojourn is to rip off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or juice. Uh, wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to your right. Uh, I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come uh, remember your hope together. Let's pray.